it's easy to say, well, that was a unique example. That doesn't happen very often. And, and it's like, no, 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 change the scope. This happens all the time. It's happening right now. No one's talking about it because they don't want you to talking about it, right? And like, that's okay, it's, it's fine. But look, look, it's, it's, it's one thing to denote a individual as malevolent, but it's not the full picture is what I'm getting at. It's like, you're only looking at a minute part of the model that is malevolence. You're looking at the output. You're looking at the scapegoat that was called the evil genius. You're not looking at all the intricate gears that were basically in the background running so that when that one gear, which was in this case, Hitler locked into place with all these other gears, the whole machine worked and it was a malevolence engine. Welcome back to episode 15 of the Certain Uncertainty podcast. So we hope you enjoyed the episode last week where we went through the search for meaning, which was our first interactive podcast where we had video and was one of the most challenging topics that we worked through. We decided to continue the trend of new and challenging ideas that we want to work through, but this one will not be an interactive video. This will be back to our normal form of ideas that we want to talk through and kind of figure out different depths and meanings of an idea and where we think we're going to go with it. So for this episode, we decided to discover or at least talk through the root of malevolence and what is the source of evil. So this is a really interesting and in deep topic to work through. So we were struggling just to kind of find some common base ground for where we wanted to begin this idea. And the format of this podcast today will be kind of freeform as we kind of talk through our normal series of questions and try and figure out what levels that we can kind of come to some sort of an answer or good descriptive conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. No, well said. And I mean, today we have two specific questions that we're going to address and they might manifest into something completely different. We'll see where it goes. We're going to do a little bit of noodling on this topic, but here are the questions. What is malevolence or more specifically, what is it like? Uh, then we're going to talk about pity versus shame versus guilt and their influences on malevolence. So, and we'll, we'll discuss why we kind of flags out these three emotional capacities um, when we get there. But for the most part, let's just let's just jump into this first question and, and kind of address why we framed it in this way. So the reason we we kind of discuss malevolence as a relationship to something else is because really, I mean, the natural state of consciousness is a relevance association machine. And so whenever we're really trying to understand some kind of complex substrate of the psyche, I think we have to build some comparison analysis as to, you know, what is it similar to and where else do we see subtle forms of malevolence play out in in the world? And, and then how can we create more of a refined model around this idea of malevolence on a large behavioral scale? And so, yeah, I'll, I'll let you jump into there and, and just kind of maybe discuss a little bit about what it's like and maybe we can jump into some good historical figures because they have great examples. So yeah, definitely. So I think that one of the first things that comes to my mind when we're talking about kind of new ideas and topics is creating some common defining terms. And as you were just saying, we want to talk about pity versus shame and then malevolence and the relationship within evil. And just to start, pity is the sorrow or the feeling of sorrow that you have for others' misfortune and suffering. And then when we have shame, this is more of the the internal feeling of disappointment or frustration or blame and guilt that you feel upon yourself for actions that you have that have impacted other people. And these have many different applications for when and why you would feel these, but in the context of evil and malevolence, trying to describe what it's like, I think many of the 
the ideas that first come to my mind, especially within historical context and figures, are the major ones like Hitler and Stalin and people who have enacted mass levels of suffering throughout uh, huge populations in history. And there's a lot of you know analyses and historical books and documentaries and in, in kind of films that talk about the context of why they did what they did and the amount of people that were, you know, impacted for generations to come. But what, what really kind of struck us as we were going through this initial analysis is the, the concept, which was bizarrely confusing as to trying to understand the rationale that they gave themselves for why they did what they did. And this applies to all people who, who enact malevolent um, ideas or actions is not necessarily asking like the why, because we can explain the why, but trying to understand the root of malevolence and how people or someone is capable of conceiving and carrying out these types of ideas and actions. Like what is the root of evil and malevolence? And there was an example that you had brought up, John, about the, the dark triad. And I think that's that's something that I'm kind of interested in kind of digging a little deeper on. Yeah. So in psychology, they, they build this model that is kind of segregated into three different categories. Uh, the first of which uh, to, might, may come to no surprise. It's narcissism, the idea that you are acting in a self-interesting way and that you are self-serving at all levels of the spectrum. Uh, the second one is uh, psychopathy. And, and psychopathy is, is a very, very challenging trait to really analyze as it's usually follows many different associative traits like intelligence or charming abilities. And, and it's a really hard thing to kind of tack onto because it takes many different forms. And, and the last one is a, a term probably no one has heard of, at least outside of psychology. Um, but the term is Machiavellianism. And Machiavellianism is a trait that is associated with cunningness, the ability to manipulate others. And, and when you combine it with narcissism, you actually come to a very interesting kind of intersection there. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to manipulate people for this self-serving purpose. And then you tie in the psychopathy. I didn't mention this before, but psychopathy is also associated usually with a lack of emotional responses that are normal to a large set of other humans. Um, so you have all these three components where you're manipulating others, you're you're manipulating others, um, and then you're acting in a way that's self-interesting, and then you don't even care about other people's emotions. So like, at some ground level, there is truth in associating these core traits with malevolence and, and then the different behavioral patterns that, that form out of that. Um, and, and so like, this is where we're coming down into these three terms, pity, shame, and guilt. It's like, well, do these types of, of malevolence characters even have the capacity to to feel these things, right? Like, do they do they realize that, you know, that that this form of pity is then becoming, I don't know, obsolete? Maybe like like they don't even feel bad for other people that are, that are put into these horrid conditions or terrible living situations or malnourished states or whatever. And it's like, you know, whatever. I pity you, and you're just gonna get out of my face. Like, and you know, like. How do you rationalize that, right? Because like that's, I feel like the the core aspect of malevolence. It's like okay, there is a selection process of matter. In this case, you know, dehumanizing humans a little bit and calling humans matter. But but that that is what you do. You're, you're saying okay, this is matter, and some matter has some forms of utility that are greater than others, and then this utility can allow me to achieve some ambitions or goals in a in a higher way or a more unified way with this other group or community that also acknowledges my own. Uh, 
uh, sets of feelings and sentiments towards others. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot there. And, and, and maybe we should just take a step back and, and, and just figure out, you know, instead of figuring out exactly what malevolence is, because it takes all these different forms, depending on the relationships with, with these, these uh, sentiments with others, it's like, what is potentially causing malevolence, right? Yeah. Because there's a causal factor. Like you, I, I can't imagine that the second a fertilized baby's in the womb or whatever, it's like, boom, that baby's malevolent. It's not there, you know, like scheming inside the womb, like, all right, I'm gonna, you know, mass genocide. So, you know, at this point, it's like, okay, what's happening from child to full, full-fledged full adult with all these doctrines of malevolence, um, what's happening in between that period? Because in that period, there is this development process that builds malevolence, right? So what do you think maybe are salient factors or important factors that are related with the, the development of malevolence? So I think you just touched on a whole, a whole bunch of interesting <laughs> things. So I think starting from, I guess I'll go backwards. So from the womb genetics is is the ability to conceive and enact evil something that is learned developed or genetic and i think that's a question we're still aiming to answer today is that when we have people who suffer from extreme mental health debilitations and problems and malformations are these uh neural circuitry pathways learned are they developed? Do they have a predisposition for things like this? And I think in some contexts, there are people who are predisposed to certain behaviors and and problems that can lead to other things where people have, you know, psychosis or psychotic tendencies, and those could be genetic. Those could be passed down from the parents. They, they're also most definitely known to be learned or able to be learned given the nurture or the nature of different experiences that they are exposed to as a child, when they have extreme trauma, when they have physical abuse and all these other factors, you know, substance abuse, all of these things can lead to new malformations in the brain that can cause, um, you know, dangerous tendencies. Step before that, or the, the point that you kind of touched on before that was, do they recognize that they are being pitiful or guilty or shameful? And I think this is a really interesting delineation point when we're looking at people who have the ability to conceive malevolence, obviously there's many, many people and it's within our own uh, psychological capabilities to experience guilt. It's natural to feel guilt. It's natural to feel shame and it's natural to feel pity. And whether or not you make the active decision to kind of portray that or project it onto those people you're talking to, if you see people who are suffering and you feel pity for them, you know, we could kind of talk about how that's different than empathy or not. Or if you enact something on someone else, so you're the source of the problem or suffering on someone else and you have pity for them and you recognize that as opposed to a subconscious feeling of pity, guilt, and shame, as opposed to a conscious feeling, almost as if you are at a a different kind of framework where you're looking at your own mind's ability to feel pity, shame, and, and guilt and say, I know that that should make me feel like this but I'm choosing to do it anyways, I think is where we start bleeding into psycho- psychopathy, psychopaths. Mm. And I think that's where you start getting into the ability of malevolent behavior, where you know what these actions will result in and how you're capable of making people feel negatively and in an act suffering. And you are accepting of that and you continue to do it anyways, because I'm sure many people 
felt feelings when they, when they did something wrong, whether you were a kid and you picked on your sibling and, and they, they got hurt and they cry and you're like, Oh no, I messed up. Or, or you, I don't know, like accidentally they're not accidentally, but you know, you do something that you're, you're ashamed of when you feel that guilt and you feel that shame and internally makes you change your behavior. I think that's one path, but then the other path is knowing that that exists, you continue to do it anyways. Now you're starting to get into the realm of people who are okay with and accepting and aware of malevolent behavior. And I think where this is at least making my thought kind of train go is that when you take people who have a combination of these different things, and it could be the the cunningness to manipulate other people for a self-serving interest, it is leading to a territory of control and maybe an, an external reflection of a lot of, you know, insecurities, a lot of problems and in a need like this almost primal desire to do anything and everything you can in a situation for your, your own benefit and outcome. But mm. it is a really challenging topic. Mm. Okay. So I'm going to pivot a little bit. You, what you said just inspired me to think about something outside of the individual itself. And, and, and so what I mean by that is that Maybe the the capacity for malevolence doesn't exist in an individual, but it exists in a culture, and that the culture then creates potentially a pocket for which malevolence can exist. So if you look at like Germany, for example, what you would see like you know before you know the World War II when Hitler took charge and really put his doctrine forth, is that there was all this vacuums, these power vacuums built into the Germany through the World War One and and that whole crisis and, and going forward, and and so. You know, and, and I don't mean to to say that Hitler isn't responsible for what he did, but what I'm saying is that maybe there's a little bit more responsibility and that the culture itself generated a space in which malevolence could succeed, right? In which there was this, this vacuum, there's this, this power vacuum where people all around in this specific culture felt lost, right? And so when, when there is this feeling, this general sentiment on a, on a collective level of this lost, uh, mindset, lost moral code, lost, hey, what the hell are we doing with this country? It's like, oh, boom. You can have either someone who who occupies that that space of lostness for that culture in a bad way or a good way. Right. And and so it's it's kind of like a game of chance in, in some sense. It just so happened that Hitler, you know, had the the audacity to put forward his things and it was well received in the community itself at that specific time. Right. If he had waited a year later, maybe someone else that had the exact opposite moral code as Hitler would have taken that space in the environment sure. as opposed to him. And, and then all this great doctrines may have come forward. Right. And it's like, you know, hypothetical. Right. But but maybe maybe that's that's the root of it all is that that the malevolence doesn't like as we were saying in, in the womb, it's like, you know, it's this baby like scheming like it's not yeah. doing this in the womb. Right. It's like when does that scheming actually uh, develop? Is it through the influence of of the collective, the, the individuals that surround them and the, the void of the culture around them itself, right? Versus, you know, inside the individual, it's purely individually created and everything of malevolence is really generated internally based on their own interpretations. But I think that's not really how it goes because there's always this social dialogue, the social contract that's being made across every individual and every relationship. And so in some sense, all those those subtle relationships and interactions of social dialogue subtly influence Hitler in this case mm -hmm. to behave and fill that power vacuum in a specific way. 
that optimized the country's success, at least, you know, what they thought of. Um, and so that's kind of where, I, where I'm, I'm, I'm shifting the malevolence from being inside the individual to actually being in this cultural beast, mm-hmm. this cultural melting pot. Um, well, I think, I mean, we've, we've seen many times in recent history and like previous history where a country or a region is in significant turmoil and there is a malevolent individual who takes advantage of the confusion and suffering right. that already exists that happens to this day and it's happened throughout history. And I'm wondering when you when you were talking about kind of comparing someone, say, that would come in a year later with genuine or non, non-malevolent intentions, does that individual have the capability of rising to a position of leadership and power over the person who's malevolent, who is willing to deploy the cunning and manipulative and decisive and and uh, like false or or lying, well, deceitful actions in order to to be successful. Because I feel like, and this is something we've kind of touched on in, in another episode where we talked about the the mindsets that the mindset required to rise to power, and is someone of genuine intent capable of outperforming in the in the public opinion or even in an, an enclosed system a person who is capable and willing to fully deploy the abilities of deceit and manipulation and gaslighting because if you're the person receiving all of that you're always on the defensive you're always trying to deal with an unpredictable situation of someone who is actively deceitful how can you win it's like that's why those people frequently are rising to the positions of power because they're not afraid or they're they're psychotic enough to take advantage of the abilities of deceit and that's such an interesting dynamic that exists while while maintaining and owning positions of power and leadership is that you they have the ability to lie their way through situations to manipulate other people to blackmail people and it's it's kind of terrifying to think about how those people within power that want to keep their power have those abilities and frequently do use them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so like what that really made me think of is that these, these traits that you're talking about, this cunning, this, this manipulative ability and so forth. I don't know if it is all within the individual itself because it takes a community to actually exercise like true malevolence in a sense. It takes a, a big unit of individuals to actually conduct these deeds. It's not just one person. And so what I wonder is that if there is some kind of uh, stratification of these traits into many different individuals or organizations. And so at every level on a, on a big nationwide scale, you have maybe the figurehead who has that cunningness, that ability to manipulate, to come off as as uh, emotionally sensitive perhaps and, and sympathetic to the people. And then you have different organizations that take charge in, in building out the psychopathy elements, right? And then you have another organization that builds out the narcissist elements of it. And, and the cooperation of all these three, these three things, these organizations, organizations then builds the presence of malevolence through the dark triad. I'm just using the dark triad as an example. Obviously there's lots of lots of other traits that could exist and you'd have, you know, like seven or eight different communal organizations that are uh, backing this one figurehead or one dictator. Um, and, and, and what I'm trying to say is that a country is not sustained by a dictator itself. It's surrounded by all the different high level people that have worked their entire lives to get there and put the dictator in power more or less, right? 
the dictator more is is acting in a way that they have one very very valuable trait that they're great at and that's why they've been elevated to this position they have and what i'm saying is that there were pseudo manipulations in the background they were taking advantage of maybe hitler's cunningness or manipulative ability to do these things but then reframing them in a way that he would not normally do sure yeah in other words does malevolence actually exist in the individual or does it exist in a group, right? Mm, I feel like, I feel like definitely in the individual because without the individual, the group won't enact those things, those actions, because that's been one of the, one of the most analyzed probably pieces of, mm. of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust and all of all of those kind of periods is Okay, we know definitively that what Hitler did was was horrible, terrible, one of the worst things to happen in, in the 20th century. But then we go a level deeper and say, how did he convince an entire country or an entire army or a population to agree with and go along with what he was doing? And I think frequently there's been lectures and, and pieces written about um, what you would do when people always say that they would take the moral high ground that in, in the position of an officer, they would say no. And it's like, well, would you, would you actually like in, in all of the context and framework of what was going on in that time with the fear of, you know, protecting your family or, or going against being assassinated, all of these things, would you actually have the ability to like rise above and, and go against the the culture that was shifting at that time is is difficult but it does go exactly with what you're saying that malevolence does exist within a community as well or at least mm -hmm. the ability for malevolence to grow in conversations and in actions and yeah and, and so like this is where i'm going with it right it's like one individual can't do anything like by himself. He can't build a nation by himself. There, there's all these other pieces and moving parts to making this thing work, right? And a lot of that infrastructure was pre-built, I think. And, and, and that's what I mean by these just pockets that form and then people kind of surround them. And, and that's what I mean. It's like, maybe I can frame this in, in a different way with, with using the term genius and Hitler might be the evil genius, but let's look at just geniuses, right? Let's just look at how people associate genius. And a lot of the times with inventions, they, they find one individual to be the, almost the scapegoat of genius. When in reality, there's a whole hive mind behind that genius that helped produce all those new inventions and technologies. And they never get mentioned. They get forgotten through the woven fabric of history because they weren't the one who actually put out the output at the end of the day. And so you're basically having this dis dissolution of credibility associated with some genius set. And in the case of, of like Einstein, for example, Einstein was piggybacking on many, 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 many years of physicist. And, and if you use that, it's like, well, was Einstein, you know, Einstein was a genius, obviously, right? Like, but like, you know, using that as an example, just to say like, okay, there is this collective process going on and that sometimes we forget that there's a lot of other moving parts behind the scenes that allowed something to even be created in the first place. And so that's what I'm arguing for with, with Hitler is that he was just a, he was an embodiment of something that could take the form of malevolence. Yeah. There's a, there's a fantastic book that's like a thousand pages called the rise and fall of the third Reich. And it, it's, 
really interesting to kind of go into the detailed context of what was going on in the periods from 1900 to 1920 to 30 to 40 and through kind of the rise and fall of where where they kind of grew to where they did and then and then and then vanished or at least were defeated but that is an an interesting perspective because that's not the first time that it happened nor is it the last time that it happened it's happened since then in other regions of the world today and you look at how different leaders or at least the the world as as a an entire population has looked at these lessons from history and then still kind of been repeating the same deck of cards in a different order which it's like will it end how will it change what do we do differently well that's what i mean it's it's easy to say well that was a unique example that doesn't happen very often and and it's like no 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 change the scope this happens all the time it's happening right now but no one's talking about it because they don't want you to talking about it right and like that's okay it's it's fine but look look it's 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 one thing to denote a individual as malevolent but it's not the full picture is what I'm getting at. It's like you're only looking at a minute part of the model that is malevolence. You're looking at the output. You're looking at the scapegoat that was called the evil genius. You're not looking at all the intricate gears that were basically in the background running so that when that one gear, which was in this case Hitler, locked into place with all these other gears, the whole machine worked and it was a malevolence engine. Exactly. So it's like, what, what, what would have happened if you were to have dropped Hitler in the middle of Spain? Yes. Like, exactly, exactly. It's like the time, the setting, the place, the culture, the entire, the entire chessboard has to be aligned in, in a way that creates a route capable for malevolence to thrive. It starts smaller than it finishes. And in order for it to grow to a certain level, it has to be more than just the person or the individual who is exacerbating the culture of malevolence or at least ideals of malevolent evil actions. But I kind of want to bring it, bring it back around full circle. That's a really interesting topic too. That's really cool. How do we, how do we look at the, the root of malevolence yeah, in yeah. a culture now? So I was, I was just going there actually in my head. So basically Germans have this term called zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is like the, the wandering spirit of the culture in, in, in some colloquial English sense. And, and basically zeitgeist is a very popular literary term that describes the behavioral adaptations of a culture itself over a given period of time. And so when you're looking at it, what, you're, what you want to understand is the zeitgeist of any given culture. What is that zeitgeist? How is it moving? How is it shaping? Um, and what are the moral ideologues pervade inside the society, right? Because like in, in this Germany where that pocket was, everyone was like, we need someone to step in. We need someone to take charge. We need someone to establish the authority of Germany once more in this world, right? All of those things were associated with that zeitgeist of the time that generated a pocket that could be filled with a bunch of good jelly beans or bad jelly beans. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so it's like, okay, there's going to be these pockets that form in society just with the finite process of human life itself. We can't rule forever, right? An individual can't rule forever. And so there's going to be a pocket that forms. The question is, what is the zeitgeist of that time? I think that's how you identify the presence and, and from a preventative perspective, how you prevent malevolence from actually existing is you, okay, first there's a pocket that exists. Let's figure out the zeitgeist. Cause if we don't figure out the zeitgeist, someone's going to fill it and it could be very quickly filled by someone who's malevolent. Mm-hmm. And, and in a larger level, you know, I think this happens 
in America too. I mean, all the time. And, and I won't get into it too much because it's extremely political. But there are these pockets that get that get filled by incompetence all the time. Yeah. And and because the authority is so high at that level, they will never be, I guess, retaliated against uh, for holding some type of perspective because of their high level of authority. They won't be fired. Mm-hmm. Right. Who who's going to fire Hitler? You know, you did a bad job. Like, no, like it doesn't make, you know, it doesn't make sense. They're, they're the, they're the one with the exclusive authority. And so when that happens, the presence of exclusive authority generates the very fabric for which malevolence can exist. I think through fear and the same manipulation, you create a circle of power a sphere of power around the the network in which you're trying to control that will protect and maintain your malevolent practices and ideals. And I think that's exactly what Hitler did and many other of the the evil dictators is that they they wiped out everyone else who could ever oppose them. That's what Stalin did. Any sort of political dissident to the gulag. Oh, you're going to you're going to cause me problems. You're going to, you know, change the course of what we're trying to plan. You're gone. You're done. So I think when you when you create that sphere of influence, it's it's their way of putting layers to protect themselves. But going on to the question of how does a culture or a country lose itself or lose the way enough that it it's so incohesive in the culture and the the unity of a culture that it's able to create the vacuum or the framework or the lack of that this kind of so here's, environment here's, can come in. Here's an interesting example that, that might help us answer this. Looking at the prisoner guard relationship, when you take basically two classes of individuals that are at the same level, the same class of individuals, they don't have any authority over one, or one another and they don't have any prior relationships with one another. And you say, okay, half of you are going to be prisoners, half of you are going to be guards. Let's see what happens. And what happens is the guards, because of that authority, because of that pocket they're filling of authority itself, they start enacting malevolence on the prisoners themselves, mm-hmm. right? And that's the classic example as the guards start really fitting into their roles. And that just shows that Maybe malevolence doesn't exist in the individual. It exists in the environment that surrounds the individual, right? The Stanford prison experiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that, I mean, you can look that up online if you're curious on YouTube. But I think there's still clips of it and you can watch the whole thing. Just taking these two groups of individuals and putting them there and, and watch them fill that power vacuum. Yep. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden malevolence starts manifesting and you get guards, you know, like beat, like literally like beating like prisoners. I think if I remember correctly, I could be wrong. Well, it was, all, it, was it was all students. Right. It was all students yeah, yeah, who yeah. were volunteered into this experiment right. where for a short couple of days, half of them or more than half, but it was like 60, 40, where there were some students who were the, the prisoners and there were some students who were the guards and they were just told to play the role with, with not very much other direction. And then very shortly afterward, the guards started to adopt and kind of over-exemplify the duties or at least, uh, I don't even know, framework which they thought they were supposed to be within this this power. And it turned into violence, right? which was not the plan. It was unexpected, but also a really interesting psych- psychological experiment on human nature in the environment. And that goes back to the point, if you were put in the, the position of a Nazi guard or, you know, one of Stalin's, yes. Um, you know, appointed leaders, would you have the moral high ground or at least wherewithal to, to go against, to say no, when you're given this power and this new environment, would your own moral high ground trump or at least, you know, go above what the, the 
the power dynamic that exists in your environment turns out to be. In, in all likelihood, you wouldn't be able to resist. Yeah. You would, like, if you were finding yourself in, in Nazi Germany and you had all these people saying, you got to go to Auschwitz and, and do this stuff, um, what are you going to do? Say no, they're going to kill you, right? Like, they're going to be like, are you against the, the Nazi Germany? Like, like no, you're not going to do that. And like, you're going to follow along and you're going to end up doing malevolent deeds because you fill that pocket itself. Well, that's like, that's the, one of the biggest questions is, are you, are you actually moral? On your, are you are you strong standing in your moral high ground or are you just harmless? So this, I think, comes down to what is the moral consistency of a society? And I think at that level, you can figure out when malevolent pockets begin to form, right? Whenever you find that the moral fabric with which a nation rests on is starting to be doubted at a very high level or, or maybe the efficacy isn't, isn't appropriate for some portion of the population. You see turmoil in the moral fabric, and this moral fabric then generates all these little pockets, given due, like, largely due to people's uh, feeling of, of isolation in their own morality. And because of that, whenever there's that isolation, it's like, okay, who's going to come along and say hi to me? You know, who's going to, who's going to come along and support, you know, me and my time of moral loneliness, my moral bankrupt, like, you know, you, you want, when you're morally bankrupt, you want someone to fill your bank again with morality. It doesn't matter what it is necessarily because you're morally bankrupt and you don't have any contrast of, of spectrum. And so whatever you fill in there, it's not going to be like good or evil. It's just going to be a new moral compass. And then when we look back on it, when we reflect on it, we say, well, that was actually an evil one that you took because we know the outputs. But at the time, they didn't know the outputs, right? I mean, this is the idea. History is always told in the eyes of the winner. Um, and, and so you don't really know what's happening on that individual basis, more or less. And that's kind of where I'm, where I'm rooting it in terms of the moral consistency of, of the society or of the nation or of the tribe um, at all small levels of the spectrum. Well, I think, I think, that's, that's, I think that's exactly right. And, and to even add another kind of layer on top of this, while while this topic does seem, you know, so complicated and, and possibly even trivial in our day to day lives, when we look at the actual indications of when a culture or a society is starting to lead toward this incohesive separation and lack of whatever it is, shared cultures, shared values, shared unity, it opens up the possibilities for for malevolent, you know, fires to come in and, and those fires spread. And why that's even more important is we can look back at some of the most massive civilizations and, and cultures in history and look at the levels to which they rose and grew to and developed and their, their sphere of influence. And they still crumbled. They still fell apart. And it's, it's looking at how the culture as a whole or the, the civilization as a whole kind of iterates on itself because you take you take the arc or at least the the picture as a whole you could look at rome you could look at the persian empire you could look at all of these different ones and look at the start to finish point where you don't really look at the individual instantaneous moments along the way and you go well they started here they rose to there and they finished here and you can say okay boom 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 that was it or you can look at these little instantaneous pockets where you say okay what happened in this framework and understand that the the N minus one is what leads to the next step. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're not going to get to N plus one without the factors of N minus one. And when you, when you kind of look at it from this framework, you have to look at these instantaneous changes where you go, oh, 
this this factor that changed here when you know the 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 reliance on government changed drastically we either relied too heavily on them or too little on them and we we lost complete trust in our in our system and structure and then from there you know malevolence rose in with the promise of the opposite of that someone came in with the promise of you will absolutely be able to trust me or we trusted them so much and we got burned we'll never trust someone again and this strong dichotomy that comes in fractures the the cohesiveness of the community and in that fracture it gets filled with something that will burn from the inside out and then if the person who fills or the the institution that fills that fracture has malevolent intentions they will fan the flame even more without you even knowing it because of their cunning deception Okay. So, so yeah, yeah. Wrapping up here, I think we're, we're coming up on time. Um, I wanted to bind these three terms here and I think this is going to complete the full picture. The three terms, pity, shame, and guilt. And, and, and really, I don't even want to, I'm going to go on exactly what they are, um, in, in more depth, but basically what I want to say is that when there is moral inconsistency, or at least when there is the presence that, that the moral fabric of a society is changing, look for these three things, pity, shame and guilt, there's a high chance that the moral fabric is starting to corrupt and starting to, to crumble. And you're going to get these power vacuums that start to form. So look for the presence. Whenever there's a high level of pity, whenever there's a high level of shame, whenever there's a high level of guilt, that is a cue, I think, that you are potentially in a morally inconsistent society mm-hmm. that's about to have extreme changes on the power dynamic structure. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a an interesting way and an awesome way to end this really complex discussion that we had. And I think when we reflect on, you know, our own culture and when we reflect back on history, we can probably really easily identify some of these things starting to to creep up in different corners of discussions and ideas and in the way that we share um, growth as a as a society. Absolutely. And on that note, thank you so much for listening. This has been episode 15 of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast. Thanks, everyone. If you made it this far into the podcast and want to hear more content, please consider following us on Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube and sharing today's podcast link with your close friends. We hope this podcast incites you to start some interesting conversations and expand on some of the ideas we've discussed. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast, a podcast aimed at unveiling the certainly uncertain relationships between some of the most complex systems known to man.